0: Is there anything you would have done differently? We've reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew
1: Cuomo is having a moment.
0: Hi there, I'm Chris Steyerwald.
1: And I'm Eliana Johnson.
0: And welcome to a groovy version of Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news, media. Eliana Johnson, it is good to be back. Good to be back with you. And as always, good to traverse the length and breadth of this great nation and find so many wretches out there as I go. And so many people with so many opinions about our show and, and get all that feedback. I love it.
1: You just made everybody think they accidentally had, had lis- they were listening to their podcast on 2x speed. The,
0: well, you, I wanted to give the Venus flytrap energy off the top, but also wanted to move with alacrity into what is a stellar lineup of amazing stories about journalism.
1: All right. Chris, where were you last week, by the way?
0: I was a. I'm nosy. I, I I was getting around. I had a speech to give. I had a family wedding, and it was great to do both. It was great to be with my people of of many different kinds. And I I had I had a great week and a great trip. Uh, but now it's after Labor Day. The seersucker suit, the the white is away, and we are we are ready to get down to business.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. So on our front page. We have this massive Wall Street Journal poll that the headline is Biden's Age Economic Worries Endanger Reelection in 2024. Wall Street Journal poll finds nearly three quarters of voters say the president is too old to run. Chris, what say you?
0: Well, certainly we have that poll, we have the CNN poll, and everything lines up over the same target, basically which is that Donald Trump has an enormous lead for the Republican nomination and Democrats are dispirited about Joe Biden. Just one note about the Wall Street Journal poll, which is to say, I don't think that it's rigged or fake or whatever. It's While it has a little pro-Trump lean to it, it, I'm not saying that it's methodologically unsound, but the controversy surrounding the poll is... Evidence of an error in judgment over time with the Wall Street Journal, which is Tony Fabrizio, who is a Trump pollster who worked for Trump and is the lead pollster and a strategist for Trump's super PAC, is the Republican pollster for the Wall Street Journal. This is a mistake, right? And when you, the the Wall Street Journal previously had the great polling team, they had public opinion strategies from the Republican side and they had hard opinion research from the Democratic side, did their poll together. And was you know a gold standard poll for a long time. The decision to keep Fabrizio, and again, I'm not alleging that there is that that they're cooking the books or something, but it attrits the value of this poll. And either they should have found somebody other, somebody who was not engaged with the Republican front runner, or done something different. But I think that that's worth noting.
1: The most interesting thing I thought was in this poll, was not, of course, Trump is leading the Republican primary field by a lot, but was Trump's strength in a general election that the poll showed matched up with Biden. He's stronger. He's showing stronger in this poll in a general election than he was basically ever in 2020, and I pulled out this tidbit, by an 11-point margin, more voters see Trump rather than Biden as having a record of accomplishments as president. Some 40% said Biden has such a record, while well, 51% said so of Trump. By an 8-point margin, more voters said Trump has a vision for the future. And by 10 points, more descri- more described Trump as mentally up to the presidency. And I think this puts Democrats in sort of a bind because Biden's sell to Democrats for his candidacy is that Barack Obama intervened in 2016 to push Biden out of that race and to tap Hillary, to give Hillary Clinton his blessing to run. And then she lost one one of Obama's many mistakes. And then Biden ran in 2020 and he was able to defeat Trump. And so I think Biden's sell is that I'm the guy who can beat Trump. And I think there's real concern in the Democratic Party that if Biden steps aside, Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or Gavin Newsom won't defeat Trump. At the same time, he's not looking so good himself. And we know from I can't remember which outlet it reported it, but that Obama has said to Biden and Democrats who are clearly gaming for Trump to be the Republican nominee, don't dismiss him. And this poll shows that to be wise counsel.
0: Well, the, the problem that Democrats have and the the missing piece in the analysis always or what? What would you do? Joe Biden is pretty unpopular. He's about as unpopular as Donald Trump was at this point in his presidency. He's a weak incumbent. Americans, including most Democrats, and this is in every poll, think Biden is too old for the job. Biden has a persistent, irrevocable problem, which is that he is 81 years old and he is running for a four-year term as president, which is preposterous on its face. But it is, of course, also preposterous on its face that a person who tried to steal a second term in office and sent a band of hooligans to the Capitol to smash in the windows and poop in Nancy Pelosi's wastebasket is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination. To quote my old boss, the sage Bill Salmon, is... I can tell you why none of these people can win, and yet someone always does. And what Democrats are hoping is that in the end, in a general election, faced between the feebleness and infirmity of Joe Biden and the rascality and rapacious hunger for power of Donald Trump, that voters will accept Joe Biden. That's why Democrats are so worried about no labels. That's why Democrats are so worried about anything that operates as an escape valve for what I always call the Yunkin Biden voter, the people, particularly men, who might be more aligned with the Republican Party on issues or the traditional Republican Party on issues, but voted for Joe Biden anyway to keep Donald Trump from continuing to be president. They they need those voters. Those are the voters on whom Joe Biden can base his reelection. And. They believe that in the end and oh, and the other thing that they're counting on, that Democrats are counting on, not unreasonably, is that the Republican Party is hopelessly divided. If we think of Donald Trump as what he is, which is not a candidate in an open election, but a incumbent, he's running basically as the incumbent. And for some of his supporters, the actual (laughs) the actual incumbent, he's a weak incumbent. And that's how that's how this is playing out. So you have two weak incumbents running against each other, and Democrats feel that they have the opportunity, while Trump is busy defending himself in court and Republicans are busy tearing each other's throats out, that they can go on the air and start wearing down persuadable, independent voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, and use what will be their longtime advantage in cash and time to push those that 5 to 15% of persuadable voters in their direction
1: that one of the, that part is is what i don't think a lot of republican primary voters are factoring in which is that trump is not really going to be able to campaign he's not campaigning right now and in the general election he's going to be in court you know as of the eve of super tuesday he's going to be tied up in court And this poll shows that Biden is is weak on the economy by a two-to-one margin, basically. Voters disapprove of his handling of the economy and inflation, of immigration, of the war in Ukraine. And Trump is not going to be in a position to prosecute to prosecute the case against him.
0: Well, but neither will Biden be in a position to campaign vigorously because he will have to stay out of sight. Also aside. true. The, 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 However,
1: <laughs> he's gonna probably be in a better, case, a, a better place than, than Trump.
0: You know, the lesson in terms of-
1: Tough call though. So the,
0: the way that media coverage drives elections. So Barack Obama, as example, when you get, or John McCain in the Republican primaries, or Donald Trump in 2016, Favorable, frequent media coverage can help you win. And that's, that is absolutely true. But generally, what happens is the more you're in the news, the worse you do. If Al Gore in 2000 had left for a worldwide tour on a tramp steamer in July of 2000, he'd have beaten George W. Bush. But instead, Al Gore was around and reminded people that he was Al Gore and that people did not like him. People don't like either the persuadable electorate doesn't like either of these candidates. And we know the famous story about how Hillary Clinton lost the election, which is Access Hollywood tape drops. Donald Trump's support falls into a pit. And then right at the end, Hillary Clinton gets back in the news and she's back in the news for what? For Anthony Weiner's laptop. Gross. And that that's (laughs) that's that that pushed her back onto the front page for just the right moment to remind people and so that's what kind of a demolition derby a trump biden election would be which is despairing voters saying oh, i can't vote for this guy well oh, i can't vote for that guy oh, i can't vote for that guy and back and forth and back and forth until basically joe biden <clears throat> needs to win the national popular vote by about as big a margin as he did last time or better to remain president. So he needs, you know, to win by 9 million votes or something nationally if he is to be at the level in swing states where he will be able to narrowly surmount Trump in those five, six, seven key states.
1: What do we got next, Chris?
0: We got, oh yeah, well, this is uh, to your point. This is to your point. The discussion, so the judge in Trump's Georgia case says that they will keep to their consistent pattern in the Fulton County court system of having a stream available on YouTube and allowing pool coverage from the press of Donald Trump's proceedings. And there is a persistent call for federal courts to do the same. Here is an op-ed in The Hill from someone named John White who is a professor of politics at Catholic university, and he makes the, the impassioned case that the federal courts, uh, should also allow Donald Trump's trials to be televised. And I am here to say, no, (laughs) I am here to say in the most enthusiastic way possible, absolutely not. Professor white, it will be bad enough to have the OJ. So in my my current analogy for Donald Trump is he's O. J. Simpson. There's a, a a devoted minority of Americans who like and support him. And the worse it gets for him legally, the more they will rally to his cause because they want to stick it to the man, right? And the 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 MAGA hardcore the martyrdom of Donald Trump in court makes them love him more. For the rest of the country, though, of course, it's a it's a grind. O.J. was a grind. It was It went on forever. There was a great non sequitur cartoon at the time. I remember well, it's a guy sitting in hell and the devil is loading tapes into a VCR. And it says like OJ Simpson trial number 435. And the devil says to the guy, don't worry, we'll never run out. And the exhaustion of the OJ Simpson trial by the, by the end America was plenty sick of OJ Simpson. And Donald Trump is a similar kind of figure. And that effect will certainly take place in Georgia. But keep cameras out of the federal court system. Please keep them out of the federal court system. This is not about transparency. We know what will happen. A transcript will be made available. Reporters will go and listen. Having those cameras in there to, for Donald Trump and for the prosecutor, for everybody to perform in front of, and make it a performative process instead of a sacred sanctum where the jury is undertaking their constitutional obligations as citizens to make this choice. Don't turn it into a TV show.
1: Well, there's one other thing, which is that we already know what happened on January 6th. We already know a great deal about Trump's attempt to stay in office. And this gentleman argues that Without live recordings of the proceedings, Americans will be subject to various media interpretations of what happened without witnessing it for themselves. We all witnessed what happened on on January 6th. We've all heard Trump's phone conversation with the Georgia Secretary of State. And he says, without cameras, conspiracy theories will proliferate. Um, right, <laughs> Trump, the master showman, will present the version of of his proceedings to the public. I, I really don't think cameras in the courtroom are going to dispel conspiracy theories around around this. E- exactly, um, people what, watch what happened around this has been has been plain to see for people, and um, those who glom onto conspiracy theories, the events that unfold in that courtroom are not going to dissuade them of of their view. Right,
0: we watched January sixth live. And still, people don't agree about what happened. The idea that video will dispel these things—we watched the moon landing live, Uh, right—and that did not dispel these things. Do not dispel conspiracy theories because Team Hume, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, reason is the servant of the passions, and it will ever be thus. You can't. It 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 doesn't work. And making the federal court system into a TV set is a mistake.
1: Continuing on our 2024 bucket of items, we have a Politico report headline is "Desantis's super PAC head honcho privately admits he's spreading dirt on Ramaswamy, which sort of stating the obvious. But what is, you know, we all know that these campaigns are spreading dirt on each other. But what caught my attention here. Was this comes from a leak tape of le- Jeff Rowe tape. T- uh talking right talking to donors, um, and he tells the donors of Vivek Ramaswamy everything you read about him is from us. Every misstatement, every 360 right. he's conducting or 180 that he is going through in life is from our scrutiny and pressure. And so he's not going to go through he's not going to go through that very well, and that will get worse for him. What? And I sort of, I mean, I read this and just wondered, like, wh- why, why are you saying this? It it has the effect of pissing off the press, which you actually do need in running these campaigns, because it makes them look stupid when they're writing stories about Ramaswamy, it, and and also it's not true, it's not true. And then there's another way to say it, which is just that. He's flip-flopped on a lot of issues and presidential primaries are enormously difficult and everything you've ever said is exposed. There's a way to say it, of course, without taking credit. There's no, there's really no need to do
0: it. Well, there is a need if Jeff Rowe, who is the the Pac-Man for Ron DeSantis, there is a need if you think of the other part of that, air quote, leaked tape, which is, him telling donors that he needs another fifty million dollars in two weeks in order to keep Ron DeSantis in the race. And I wish that I had the kind of Hutzpah that Jeff Rowe expressed there. They have <clears throat> that pack and that campaign have been a only modestly mitigated catastrophe. Right. This has their work makes. What's his name? Who is Jeb's guy? Mike. Mike Murphy. Yeah. This is not now in the Mike Murphy Hall of Fame of catastrophic strategies and the idea Mm -hmm. that Ron DeSantis was going to attack Donald Trump's base of support in a frontal assault, that he would go in there, blow up Donald Trump's base and then subdue the rest of the party was such a cock and bull story, such a preposterous idea to begin with that this guy who's never run a national campaign, never done this before, who is...
1: Well, he ran the Cruz campaign.
0: No, no, I'm talking about DeSantis.
1: Oh, DeSantis, I see.
0: Right, and they basically picked up the Cruz campaign where Cruz left off being booed by his home state delegation at the Republican convention (laughs) after after telling people to vote their conscience. The idea that you were going to go after Donald Trump, and then after that, you would go subdue the rest of the party. That's not where Ron DeSantis was. And yet again, we have an example. There are many. We can include Scott Walker. We can include Jeb Bush. We can include many others. Early money can be a curse more often than it is a blessing. They conceived of this massive, expensive campaign instead of a way that Ron DeSantis might have been competitive, which is scrappy trying. I'm going to go up there, I'm going to get on the trail. Well, I don't know. Well, he's only at 7%. Well, now he's at 14%. Well, now he's at well, he's at 20. He seems to have momentum. Oh, I guess this is going on. You start at 30% and bleed down to 12% and you convince people, "Uh, oh, this guy's it's going the wrong direction." And then to go back to donors and say, "Well, you're in for a penny you're in for a pound you've already wasted all of these tens of millions of dollars now you have to give me another 50 million dollars or it's wasted money that's i think that the lesson of 2016 the lesson of 2012 again and again that has been reinforced early big money is a liability donald trump didn't have any money he didn't have any money and he ran a successful campaign this is and so claiming oh yeah Everything you read about Vivek Ramaswamy, I made that happen. I made that happen. Talk about looking for slim solace for a campaign that once was going to overaw the competition and clear the field to say, we got a piece in the Daily Beast about Vivek Ramaswamy is pretty small beer.
1: I'm going to agree with you and then push back on you a little bit. First, the the campaign has, or the Super PAC has already spent north of $130 million and then um, they were telling donors, we need $50 million because the next two months are going to determine the course of this race. So that'll be $180 million. And they say that by November, we're going to know what's going to happen here. That's an enormous amount of money, (laughs) An enormous amount of money. And they don't have very much to show for it. So that's, so that's worrisome. That's where I definitely agree with you. I think the part where I may not totally or I may part ways with you is that I just think this is an enormously difficult task no matter what. And when you say he could have started at 7% and been at 14%, he can really control where he started. You know, he started at 30% support and nobody, nobody yet has figured out how to go after Trump successfully. So I I don't totally blame him. I will say this has not been, this has not been conducted with a lot of aplomb, but but what a challenge. But
0: I, but I don't think going after Trump is how you win. I don't think that the secret is. Now, look, Chris Christie has a New Hampshire strategy. He's like John McCain in 2000. I got to win New Hampshire and then I can reframe the race in the subsequent months. The way that and you saw Mike Pence trying that this week, which is you have to consolidate the 25 percent of the Republican Party that does not want Donald Trump. You have to consolidate their support. And then you have to start eating away at the third of the party that's persuadable. Don't waste your time fighting with Donald I Trump. I
1: totally, well, I, I think that DeSantis needed to, I, I think the mistake he made was trying to get the Trump voters. Exactly. Those people are not persuadable. And he needs to, he does need to go after Trump in the sense that he needs to attack him yeah. and tell voters why he's a better choice. Yes,
0: contrast, contrast, I actually
1: yes. thought, I thought Mike Pence's Mike Pence gave a speech yesterday taking Trump on ideologically, yes. saying why populism is bad. And I thought that was, like, incredibly interesting because we have only heard critiques of Trump, character-based critiques of Trump, personality-based critiques of Trump. And I thought Pence making the case that he's also ideologically unfit to lead this party was incredibly interesting. And that was, like, a, a speech for adults treating Republican primary voters like adults. And I was a huge fan of it. I thought it was incredibly interesting. And
0: it's and, and, and it allowed him to broaden the attack, not just on Trump, but to Ramaswamy and DeSantis. Totally. His, right. his competition is with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott to yes. try to consolidate that quarter of the party behind a candidate to then get a seat at the table In February. Right. The whole the whole idea is, okay, who will survive this round? Who who will who will after Iowa and New Hampshire be left for the for the, the final battle? And Mike Pence is making his argument. I'm a better choice than Nikki Haley and I'm a better choice than Tim Scott. DeSantis doesn't know who he's fighting with and he continues to do stuff like go on Eric Bowling's TV show. I'm here to tell you. Eric Bowling, or, you know, whatever that is to to go on OANN or whatever and go on and answer questions about whether or not you feel bad for the January six defendants. That's not taking you anywhere. Their missed effort was to consolidate anti-Trump support and then go fight for the persuadable voters.
1: Up next. We have Rolling Stone reporting that the neo-Nazis marching in Florida (laughs) declared they were all DeSantis supporters and and leaving out that they chanted F Ron DeSantis. Yes. So selective uh, listening media Mediaite reports that a Rolling Stone article meant to highlight support for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at a neo-Nazi march in the Sunshine State has been debunked by video of the event. In the misleading report, politics writer Peter Wade claims that, quote, some of the marchers individually expressed their distaste for Donald Trump, saying they prefer Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And then the video shows others saying F. Ron DeSantis. But um, that
0: didn't make it into the final copy. Did not make no. it into the no, final uh, left, copy.
1: I left on the cutting room floor.
0: <laughs> Perfect. It's just, mwah.
1: And... Chris, we, we thought we would talk about the free beacons. It's the opposite of a tête-à-tête.
0: Contratompe. Yes,
1: yes. Contratompe with Vivek Ramaswamy and the Ramaswamy campaign. And I could give a little background. What we happened? Yeah. I, I, rarely, I rarely get into Twitter wars of words. I am not a fan of them, as uh, regular listeners of the podcast know. But... Our Ramaswamy campaign correspondent, reporter, Free Beacon reporter, Alana Goodman, wrote a report about Ramaswamy's appearance on an anti-Semitic YouTuber's podcast. I was not actually familiar with this podcaster, but his name is Albert Falsecki or Albert Faleski. And a review of his tweets, it's not, you know, this is not a... Oversensitivity, shall we say? These are cut and dry anti-Semitic tweets, and so we wrote about Ramaswamy's appearance on his podcast because he is embracing a an earned media strategy where he goes anywhere and everywhere. He went on the podcast. He did not raise the host's um, history of anti-Semitic statements, and just wrote it up. The campaign told us they were not aware of the host's history of these statements which says which tells you something about you know the level of sophistication which, with, with which the campaign is vetting the interviewees it does but they told us they they might have appeared on the show regardless and afterwards Ramaswamy's spokeswoman called the Beacon reporter and said they considered this to be a report written in bad faith and we're going to cut off her access to the campaign So we wrote another story saying just that, that the Ramaswamy campaign had cut off uh, the Free Beacon's access to the campaign. Ramaswamy took to Twitter to say, took to Twitter to say, this is a false story. We are happy to talk to the Free Beacon. And what he meant to say was they don't want to deal with this reporter. They will talk to other reporters at the Free Beacon. And that's just not how it works. Campaigns do not have the luxury of picking and choosing which reporters they deal with. That's that's not how the system works. So that was the that was the substance of our disagreement with the Ramaswamy campaign. But you know, a, a sort of meta point on this is that Ramaswamy is aping Trump in the same way where he will talk to anybody and everybody. And if he doesn't like what's written, he will simply say it's false despite evidence that people can see with their own eyes and demonize the outlet and the reporter. The tactics are exactly the same.
0: That's And in this case, ex- exceptionally clumsily handled, right? the You might have an internal discussion in your campaign where you say, Let's not do any one-on-ones. Let's let's try to freeze this reporter out. That's part of the game too, but you don't you don't say
1: right. You don't need to respond to requests for comments or anything. Right,
0: exactly. That is am- amateurish. Amateurish.
1: Chris, I had precisely zero interest in this next story, but but you were eager to discuss. The 2024 candidates and the songs that stir their souls. Uh, A report from
0: Politico. Politico magazine. So let me just start by saying I hate this kind of coverage. The what's what's your favorite? What's what's your favorite food? What's your whatever? The sort of surficial, because you know all of these answers are. So the the lead is
1: poll tested and
0: yeah the the, the lead is absurd based on. A tweet (laughs) so the premise the premise for the story is that someone tweeted make a 20 track comp of your all-time fave tracks each artist can only feature once not the best songs the ones that bring you instant joy the second you hear the first note the ones that give other people the best insight into what stirs your soul share when ready so rando says this and so politico was like hey there's a story. Here's something I saw on Twitter. Let's do that. And so they reached out to the campaigns. And obviously, as you say, these are my, the, when John McCain was asked this in 2008, do you recall what he said? No. ABBA, which, oh my God, which I loved because it was so obviously had not been run by the staff. You don't say when people say, oh, you're too old or you're out of touch, you're like, I like the Swedish disco pop sensations of the late 1970s ABBA, but oh my gosh! But at least it was honest. There are some pretty good lists here. I feel that there you can see in I in Chris Christie, there's a inclusion of Tiny Dancer that I don't really. That's a Trump song. I don't get why Trump and Chris Christie get fired up and their soul is moved by Tiny Dancer. Oh,
1: I love that! Yeah. I love that. All right, now I'm getting into this. It, I love I love Tiny Dancer.
0: Uh, the in, but you as you would expect from Chris Christie, Springsteen, Billy Joel, Bon Jovi, Brian Adams, sort of the 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 songs of his generation. Though I do appreciate his inclusion of Prince with Let's Let's Go Crazy and the Police and the Talking Heads, which I admire. Nikki Haley, pretty good list. Right, the inclusion of "Fast Car" by Luke Combs.
1: Oh, that's good. Looks
0: like a nod. It, when you look at the rest of the list, it looks like a nod to Southern voters more than a natural inclusion. My my tip of the hat to her is Howard Jones's "No One Is to Blame," which is a fabulous, fabulous song. And Howard Jones is underrated, but the 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 lamest Vivek Ramaswamy lose yourself. Two songs by Imagine Dragons, Aerosmith and Fall Out Boy, all on his list. And I'm here to tell you, if ever I have seen a playlist that aligned with the public image of a candidate in an unfortunate way, a double Imagine Dragons with with, with a Fall Out Boy and Aerosmith side is right on it. Will Heard with a very sort of adult contemporary coffee shop energy on his, though his standout Selection, two standout selections Do What You Like by Digital Underground, Mad Props to Humpty Hump, and Eastbound and Down by Jerry Reed from Smokey and the Bandit. But there is no debate as to who has the best playlist, and that is Larry Elder. Larry Elder is an amazing collection of standards and Motown with just a little, a, a couple of extra little things thrown in there. But man, I would let I would let Larry Elder program my playlist anytime. He could DJ your party. Totally. Larry Elder is correct. Wake Up Everybody by Harold Melvin. That's Life by Frank Sinatra. Though I would say that the James Brown cover of That's Life is superior to the Sinatra original. Think by Aretha Franklin. I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers. A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Brooke Benton, The Temptations. He's got two from boys to men. I guess that was probably a time in his life, a season of his life. But but no hate, just excellent.
1: All right. this I don't know how to transition from that to, to the, our next item, which is the resurfacing of COVID.
0: Well, this is a, a bucket of stories relating to what's going on. We've talked a lot about what's going on with the Republicans. Here's Here, here let's talk now, about some tensions on the left. Devs. Yeah, let's talk about some okay. tensions on the left. All
1: right. COVID resurfacing and we need to get that the Fauci clip. Let me pull that up. All right. You run through this audit item. I'm going to pull the Fauci clip.
0: I've, ri- I've written about and talked about how the Democrats face a problem as it relates to the resurfacing of COVID and coronavirus variants as we head into the fall. And just to rehearse a little of what we know is that the Corona, Corona, uh, COVID-19 was an epidemic and now coronavirus is endemic like the flu, which is to say it is part of life. People get it uh, like they get the flu. They get they. it's very contagious, but it's not very lethal and it is it is here to stay. It is it is part of our lives and therefore doing things like shutting down schools, requiring people to wear masks and all of those things things, choking the sidewalks with uh, restaurant shanties, uh, is is not an appropriate response to an endemic, right? The flu kills a lot of people. 40,000 Americans die in car accidents every year. These are not happy things. These are not good things by any stretch of the imagination. But these are things that societies learn to soldier on through. Um, but for a group of Democrats, the... Resurgence in coronavirus cases, if not the a similar resurgence in fatalities, is triggering a lot of the old kind of thinking. And CNN included and offered the point of view of one Kent Sepkowitz, how COVID-19 is resurfacing, resurfacing after months of calm. And he is a physician, and I assume he appeared on the network, and he is a physician who says, he talks about how hard it was for him to find a rapid, he is a, oh, here's his note. He's a physician and infectious disease expert at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And he talks about how he couldn't find, he got a, <laughs> he, he tested positive for the Rona and then wanted to take another test. And he describes going to multiple pharmacies to try to find rapid tests. And his complaint is that he couldn't find them. And I thought, or doc, head on home. If you think you got the Rona and you feel some symptoms and you had a positive test, maybe don't go breathe on a bunch of people and go around to different drugstores lamenting the lack of tests and head on home. Call into the office. Say, I might have the vid, so I'm gonna just I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna chill here for a while. But he did not do that. He he is upset that we are not on a pandemic footing, and this is the kind of thinking that could be politically very dangerous for Democrats because the the overwhelming majority of the country does not wanna go back, they're not gonna go back. And this is a question of can you convince people to get vaccinated the same way that every year with the flu shot, what do we do? Hey everybody, remember you gotta get vaccinated for the flu shot, especially if you're high risk, especially if you're older, you gotta get vaccinated. That's life in an endemic virus, with an endemic virus and there's no political space in America and Joe Biden certainly knows it there's no political space in America for shutting things down or mandating masks
1: all right except if you're Anthony Fauci who in the UK the and Brett Stevens writes about this in the New York Times they released a comprehensive analysis of scientific studies on the efficacy of masks and concluded that they are not effective. And this is from Tom Jefferson, an Oxford epidemiologist who was the least, the the lead author of this study. And he says, there's just no evidence that they, masks make any difference, full stop. And he's asked about N95, N95 masks as opposed to lower quality surgical or cloth masks. And he says, makes no difference, none of it. So Anthony Fauci is asked about this study And he says the following.
0: How do we get beyond that finding of that particular review? Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level for individual, when you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. But when you talk about as an individual basis of someone protecting themselves or protecting themselves from spreading it to others. There's no doubt that there are many studies that show that there is an advantage.
1: Let's just hope Democrats don't, don't go back to the well on that.
0: Well, I, I, there, certainly everybody who wants to wear a mask is free to wear a mask. If, you have a, if you're immunocompromised, if you, are, if, you're, if you live with someone or visit someone who has extra concerns about coronavirus or the flu or anything, that you're certainly free to wear a mask but that's as government mandate that's a that's a that's a no go
1: but just know that they don't work the study says
0: i'm sure that masks work for indivi- i'm sure that masks work for individuals right i'm sure that doctors wearing masks i'm not sure i'm sure that they have i'm sure that they do some good worn properly that they have value, right? And that there's a reason doctors and nurses and operating rooms wear masks, and I'm sure that they have some effect. But that's that's for individuals to decide, not the state.
1: Okay. Mayor Eric Adams, Chris, you wanted to talk about immigration, saying that asylum seekers will destroy New York City. And this does underscore, I was sort of saying earlier this week that this the immigration crisis is and, and some of the crime issues in Democrat run cities are turning into intra intra-democratic, intrademocratic party issues yes. as much as they are Republican versus Democrat issues.
0: Adam says the city is supporting one hundred and ten thousand asylum seekers who have arrived in the five boroughs since April 2022. He made these comments the same day that more buses arrived to deposit migrants Presumably from Texas and border states. Let me tell you something, New Yorkers. He said, "Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City." He's like mayor two times. We're getting ten thousand migrants a month I mean, now. We're he getting sounds like Louie Gohmert have made their minds up that they're coming through the suburban southern part of the border and come into New York City. And the way that the media handles this. When you contrast it with what they had to say about Greg Abbott and Doug Ducey and Republicans on the southern border who were asked to shoulder an unfair, unfair share of what is a global problem. Right. So let's we can be grownups and say what the problem is. Globally, the problem is that people from the poor south, the poorer global south are trying to move into the wealthier north in the West. That means that Europe, is struggling with migrants from the middle east and africa and in the united states we're struggling with migrants from latin america and that's the that's the reality and it is a there's there's no sign that that is going to abate anytime soon and eric adams talking about this reframes the discussion in significant ways because instead of it being the border crisis gets a little coverage in center-left and left media and obsessive coverage on the right, this starts to shift the emphasis here and puts pressure, I guess maybe the simplest way I can say it is, Joe Biden would like to have a secure border. (laughs) He would like to have, for a lot of reasons, would like to have a secure border. But he faces pressure inside his own party against taking actions that would do that. And we remember Barack Obama being called the deporter in chief. And we remember how upset we talked on this podcast about how angry people were about the picture of a border patrol agent with his reins in his hand that looked like he was whipping migrants and all of that stuff. What Adams is doing is division within the Democratic Party, but it brings some advantage to Joe Biden. He needs to be able to demonstrate public pressure from Democrats on the need to have stronger security at the border.
1: And in cities, we have these dastardly car companies like Kia that are causing the crime wave.
0: Amazing. Uh, Just an amazing piece. piece
1: in the New York Times. But this is picking up from statements of Democratic politicians who have blamed car companies for making their cars easy to steal. It's crime spikes. And it's it's it is crime like theft that is skyrocketing in inner cities.
0: Kia and Hyundai helped enable a crime wave. They should pay for it, says Farhad Manju, uh, writing the opinion columnist for The New York Times. And this is twigging off of a study from the Council on Criminal Justice, a nonpartisan think tank about crime and auto and how auto thefts. Here's from the study. The number of vehicle thefts during the first half of 2023 was 33.5% higher on average than during the same period in 2022, representing 23,974 more vehicle thefts in cities that reported data and goes on and on and on. Why are so many cars being stolen, he asks? Police departments and city officials point to this. Millions of Kias and Hyundais are ridiculously easy to steal. Now, look, the idea that these Korean car manufacturers are Responsible that they should pay cities for crime. I mean, it's. I guess you. I guess you would just say. I guess I would just say, are there torts that could take place here where the owners of these cars could sue the manufacturer and say that it's too easy to steal these cars, and they want to be. They want a recompense. Yes, the civil. The civil court system could find a way for individuals, perhaps to do this. But the idea that they owe the cities money for these car thefts, no. That's a, that's a no from me, dog.
1: I am sure if they are so easy to steal, people will stop purchasing them.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and the market will work its magic. And the
0: market will work its magic. And let's also remember this. You know who's responsible for car thefts? I have, I have a sneaking suspicion. It's car thieves. That's who's responsible for car thefts. That's who did it. If you if you leave your car unlocked and somebody steals it, maybe you should have locked your car, but the thief is the one who is responsible. And this sort of infantilizing of people is not what works. You have to hold people accountable for their actions. They're not helpless. Oh, I saw a TikTok video. It said it was easy to use a USB drive to hotwire a Kia. Therefore, I'm going to steal a Kia. That's not good enough.
1: AOC interviewed in the New York Times Amazing. asked hard hitting questions such as we started this conversation talking about how you entered politics at a particular moment and not a good one. And you acknowledge that your tenure has been tumultuous with attacks on democracy and on your own person. Do you like your job?
0: <laughs> my my I, I, I didn't I did not get past the first question before laughing out loud. So how would you describe AOC at 33? Here's her response. Wow. What a question. I mean, come on.
1: It is like Cosmo.
0: Yeah, it is. Wow. Or
1: like teen, teen Vogue or 17.
0: Wow. What a question. That's (laughs) whoa. Like where am I at really? And the, the, the part of the, of the narrative that, so what the, what the interviewer and I want to, cite the correct person lulu garcia navarro what garcia navarro was trying to get at is that aoc is in a different place than she was when she came into office and what doesn't get accomplished in this interview is aoc changed because she sold out and i don't mean that in a pejorative way what i mean is she came in And she was going to primary everybody. She was the squad was going to take all these people down. She was going to do all this stuff. And then, you know what she figured out? Oh, wait a minute. I'm a press darling. I generate all of this media coverage. So lean into it. And the, you know, the the tipping point moment when she went to the Met Gala with Tax the Rich written on her posterior was the like, oh, okay, I got it now. You're you are you're you're sold out to the establishment now. And by the way, she will do more good for her constituents. She will create she will create more positive change in areas that she wants by being part of the process rather than sitting with five members of the squad running failed primary efforts against incumbents and being sitting out there on the fringes. Until the until the squad has enough members to do what the Freedom Caucus does on the Republican side, that's not going to happen. And this missed that. And, and it it in, was instead mostly she was allowed to mostly cast it as Democrats were mean to me when I got here. And then they found out that I'm super. And now well, it's OK. She, she
1: can't exactly say that out loud. Like, great to be part of the establishment. Right. She Can't say that.
0: What a what um, a question. Wow. Wow.
1: I did like this coverage from the Fox reporter, Claudia Cowan, who was stranded at Burning Man. And there was so much. First of all, how were all these people at Burning Man? Like every member of the press was at Burning Man over Labor Day weekend. And the- I enjoyed Claudia Cowan saying, should we play the play clip? This was this was amusing. But I have to say, you know, looking at how this event has been portrayed in other media outlets, it was like the end of the world. Mm. And it really wasn't, Mike. It was, it was um, a coming together, a communal effort, participation, immediacy. These are all the principles of Burning Man. And they really came into play. And it was still a lot of fun and uh, a, a lot of connecting with our campmates and, and hunkering down with people getting to know them. A different kind. Of, very memorable, nonetheless.
0: So there she is, t- uh. talking to Mike Emanuel about what it was like to be living among what the New York Times described as seven inches of oatmeal thick mud that choked the hippies at Burning Man or the occasional hippie, the uh, erstwhile hippies at Burning Man. And, and the, my favorite was Chris Rock walked out. <laughs> he just hiked out. It was so gross. He just hiked out over the, the, the muddy plains for miles until he could eventually hitchhike his way out of there. And the guy, whoever the guy was that got to pick up Chris Rock uh, on the side of a desert highway in Nevada will have a story for life to tell. My conclusion is this. The number of people who are doing hallucinogenic drugs in the desert each August that are in the American media explains a lot about our press. That's all I'll say.
1: Well, not for me is all I can say.
0: Oh, my you. gosh. Can you Not imagine? Can you ima- like Not either of us having to do that even without the mud? But to be at a, at a week-long music festival with porta-potties for a month, that's – that's I, I hope I never do anything bad enough to be sentenced to Not do that. Not
1: for me. That's a No. I loved this story about Spotify's spectacular $1 billion podcast bet. This is a Wall Street Journal story about all of the big celebrities Spotify hired to do podcasts, spending a billion dollars on that, and that they have only lost money. Bleeding. Um, So they got Barack and Michelle Obama and... Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And I don't even remember the other ones because I have negative interest in hearing podcasts from any of these people. But like, therein lies the problem, right? These spectacular podcast successes are like these people that you've never heard of before, like Call Your Daddy Girl or, you know, others. They're not the former president and freaking Meghan Markle. And I do think that there's this misconception that like you start a pod. Oh, everyone has a podcast and you start a podcast and you make money like that is not that is not how it works. So anyhow, to to see that written out and this is a very long story about how even the big companies like they're bleeding money on these things was yeah, heartening in a way.
0: <laughs> I must say, I, I must say, I, I must say, and also the to the great vexation of these companies, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, that have tried to basically buy out the podcast market. Water continues to find its own level. The capacity to generate hit podcasts by formula has so far been a real money suck. And at some point, it will work, right? At some point, the, there will be enough failures that market consolidation cons- occurring on its own as it does will will have yields. But you can't the the idea that you just buy a, a bajillion podcasts like private equity investments and wait for one to hit. And or the way that studios used to do it, which is we're going to make a bunch of movies. We just need one of them to hit. I don't think that's I don't think that is a functional model I think what will instead happen is there will be consolidation because people will buy successful podcasts and when you look at team coco conan o'brien's brand or you look at wondery with smartless what happens is there's a flagship podcast that is successful and then you build out from that and there will be consolidation in the future But I don't think it's going to be AstroTurfed. I think it'll have to be grassroots for now.
1: Chris, that brings us to our style section.
0: Our delicious style section.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. I know people are probably tired of me. Write to us if you're tired of me doing like my Bethany Frankel Real Housewives reels. But, Chris, I put this in because on this Instagram video, she blasts the idea of quiet luxury. This is a rant about quiet luxury and it's hilarious. I I love it. So let's play it.
2: Quiet luxury is bullshit. I'm going to tell you why. I was just in the South of France. Years ago, I stayed at Hotel Du Cap and it's where Sophia Richie got married. Sophia Richie had a complete rebrand. It's fascinating to watch a person have a rebrand. It happens all the time, but this was very, very quick. It was like a swan-like glow up. Everyone at Sophia Richie's wedding was mega wealthy and a celebrity. And this quiet luxury thing is sort of like it's a different version of loud. It's like, let's whisper very loudly, meaning let's wear muted tones and just like, these expensive brands like Gwyneth Paltrow did when she was in court in her $600 notebook that are very loudly, forcefully designed to make you not even think know that the person's rich, but it's all very intentional. It's like this loud, quiet, intentional fashion statement. And I find it to be such pretentious bullshit. I'd almost rather someone be wearing rhinestone and rainbows. Touche, Bethany.
0: So so she's
2: if that one was very if that one was the epitome of me, Chris.
0: So this one
1: has to be the well.
0: wait wait a minute. So her complaint is you
1: want to discuss her
0: complaint is that people should not try to have quiet luxury, but they should have loud luxury.
1: Yeah, she likes loud luxury.
0: Okay. well, I I will I will I will continue my plea to the American people, whatever you're doing, be cool, be cool about it. Don't be ostentatious. Don't be extravagant. Be modest and humble in the way that you do things. Set a good example for others conspicuous consumption and I certainly agree with the idea that that
1: okay well I say this as a lover of quiet luxury yes. I just loved that she was like just trying to be rich but like quietly it's like yeah
0: <laughs> right because it becomes its uh, own status symbol right you it, yeah it turns into its own status symbol and it still She's has like, the markers she
1: says she says, it's like, let's just whisper very loudly right. about in our muted tones, like expensive brands. I mean, it's totally what it is.
0: Yes, yes, A- amen to that. Okay, news you can use from the Washington Post. Best the The Washington Post claims that it can tell you what the best pizza in every state in the union is. And when I tell you that, the, the misses are, are many. I'm, I will just start with this. West Virginia, the top restaurants serving select styles in West Virginia, all pizzas. They've got three, and they're all wrong. <laughs> they're, they're all wrong. It does not include Patsy's Pizza in Elm Grove, West Virginia, which is the best pizza in West Virginia. And as you go through, you know these sorts of pieces are designed uh, to spur these kinds of conversations. About who's right and who's wrong. So, I will say, good for the Washington Post for diving into this. The authorita- authoritative piece on this was done by the Wall Street Journal many years ago and is correct. Clearly missing from this listing is Ohio Valley style pizza. Ohio Valley style pizza, which is legitimate, real, delicious pizza. My favorite kind, I won't say it's the best because it's subjective, but it is not even included. Big miss. Thumbs down.
1: I totally agree. This is wrong. Everything about it's wrong. And I hate that it allows you to select the pizza style because the best pizza is just the best pizza. Like, that's it.
0: That's it. That That
1: I, it will be good in any style. If it's the best pizza, it's going to be delicious. What's
0: the best pizza in Washington?
1: I don't really think we have a great.
0: Pizza. What's the best pizza? Oh,
1: oh. I actually love that one that you turned me on to, Chris. Which one? Emmy squared.
0: Oh, it's so good. I was going to say. Yeah, Emmy Squ-
1: I'm into Emmy squared. Emmy
0: squared is very good. And I would also commend pizza pizza, which is the New Haven, Connecticut style pizza that is also very excellent. And then if I ate carbs, I would eat that.
1: Well, I've never been to that one. What other one did I want to look up here? Oh, I wanted to see what they put for New York. They put Emmy squared for New York. That's I don't believe that for. a
0: No, you must have put in the wrong. Nope. there's no way that New Um, York.
1: Defara. All right. Defara makes it in New York and Grimaldi's. So their ones for New York are are not crazy. But I just don't like that. You can select these different types.
0: Well, they should they should suck it up. They can have different types, but they should have a in the view all category. They should they should rank them and say this is the best pizza.
1: Yeah, this is not. I don't like this. All right. Okay. The New York Post. I don't believe this for a second. Just 12% of Americans, mostly men, are eating half of our beef supply.
0: A new study reveals that 50% of the beef consumed in any given day goes to just 12% of the U.S. population, and this heavy consumption of beef has significant health impacts on those Americans who are eating half of our steaks, meatballs, wieners, and hamburgers. Current U.S. Department of Agriculture guidelines suggest eating four out. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Current U.S. Department of Agriculture guidelines suggest eating four ounces per day of meat, poultry, and eggs for those consuming 2,200 calories per day. What a joke. What a joke. I mean, I'm, I am certainly willing to believe that I am eating enough meat for six or eight people each day. I am getting it done. I am here taking care. I, I, have, I, I hit that four-ounce number most days by 9 a.m. i'm i'm getting it done and i am i i'm this this article will not shame me instead it will make me proud that i am doing the work of many americans i carry the burden of you and any number of my fellow americans on my shoulders as i consume delicious meat
1: tons, tons of bags of meat bag, consumed by 9 a.m. bag after yeah. bag
0: of meat did i did i have yeah. 8 ounces of Uh, delicious breakfast sausage today yes i did and it was good and i have no shame
1: finally in our style section we have the new york times asking have you seen paul mccartney's lost bass guitar tips welcome for decades miss what
0: i i include this because i'm going to inflict upon you a recurring feature which i will refer to as the buffett effect with the passing of Jimmy Buffett, I was alerted to a, a a terrifying media reality, which is that as baby boom pop stars go on to the great green room in the sky, we are going to just be pummeled with coverage, just pummeled. And I thought, my gosh, one day, Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, all, all of these people will have to go on to their great rewards that they're that despite their. Mick Jagger's remarkable ability to retain a youth-like appearance and mobility, all of them will go on to their rewards. And at each stop along the way, we will have to pause collectively as a nation for everyone to talk about how they felt when they went to the 50th farewell tour from Elton John. And I'm, I'm just going to track the Buffett effect going forward.
1: Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week, where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And I thought we had to talk about Elon Musk versus the ADL. And we have Elon proposing to sue the ADL for defamation um, because he says he has lost a ton of advertising revenue due to the ADL warning advertisers away from the platform because according to the ADL, there has been this explosion of quote unquote hate speech on Twitter since Musk bought the company or on X, whatever. And, and so they're telling advertisers, look, you don't want your content. You don't want your ads next to this you know, hateful content. And I would have been team Musk on this. I hate that the ADL wades into these fights and they totally alienated me when they teamed up with Al Sharpton, yeah. the a mainstreamed anti-semite to demand that Facebook do this and do that to moderate its content. I thought that was despicable. That was maybe 18 months ago. So I would have been totally Team Musk, but then he came in and said the ADL, because they're so aggressive in their demands to ban social media accounts for even minor infractions, are ironically the biggest generators of anti-Semitism on this platform. Uh, Musk said that on Monday. No, no. The ADL is not the biggest generator of (laughs) anti-Semitism. The anti-Semites are the biggest generators of anti-Semitism. But I'm not going to say it's... I'm not going to say it's Iran-Iraq war. It's like Iran-Singapore war or something. Like Singapore does a few things I don't like, but overall I like Singapore. That's Elon. And the ADL, I hate these power grabs where it comes in and uses its do-gooder virtue signaling mission to demand change change. From companies. I hate that. The anti- um, the... Advertisers should not want their content next to anti-Semitic ads, and surely they will come to that, those sorts of conclusions themselves. The
0: Anti-Defamation League follows a similar pattern that we saw at the American Civil Liberties Union, which is as it becomes a as it abandons a nonpartisan or transpartisan mission and increasingly aligns itself with the interests of the Democratic Party. It loses credibility elsewhere, and and
1: you know another good example of this was the ADL Kyrie Irving when he went on his anti-Semitic rant. The ADL accepted from him a two hundred and fifty thousand dollars I can't remember the exact amount donation and mealy-mouthed apology, and then Kyrie went back to saying his anti-Semitic stuff. Like they're they're completely ineffectual and uh, at what they do. And then go for these power grabs over social media companies that I just think are totally
0: distasteful. Um, the other thing here, is, and in the Kyrie Irving case, the idea that you can buy an indulgence like like the idea was a Borgia pope, right? If you give us the if you give us the scratch, we will then uh, look more favorably upon you. Is not yeah. is not how you get uh, re- restore your credibility but it is you are, I agree with you a hundred percent Musk's controversy courting and the dabbling in these spaces is reprehensible, right? It's just, it's gross. And you don't, the, the same thing, if we think about Donald Trump and David Duke or all of these things, it's not even a dog whistle it's like, well I'm just leaving a dish of food out here and if the dogs show up, I you know, what what can I do? The dogs have a point is not is is not good enough.
1: What's your obsession, Chris?
0: Switzerland, which is a beautiful place. It's been a long time since I've been there, but I have many friends who love it there. Kevin Williamson married a Swiss woman and loves it there and Switzerland is beautiful and great. US news tells me switzerland is number one in 2023 u.s news best countries rankings and i am here to tell you u.s news that you can go stick that in your alpenhorn and blow it out the here's here's the list their annual best countries rankings number one switzerland number two canada number three sweden number four australia and number five the united states down a spot from 2022 their ranking, I, you, you've heard me lament before these kinds, it's like, which state is the happiest? Well, the states that are like what we like are the happiest states and the states that are not like the things that we like are unhappy. The idea that U.S. News, which has, which has been exposed for its rank failure in ranking colleges has as a business model. Well, let's put, it's like the Washington Post and pizza. Well, let's just put a ranking out there, arbitrary. And we'll see what happens. The problem is they claim that this is empirical, not arbitrary, because they're formed from what they say is a partnership with Global Marketing Communications Company, WPP, and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, based on a global survey uh, of more than 17,000 people across 36 nations with asking about specific attributes, dynamic, safe, a leader, cares about human rights, economically stable, and committed to social justice. Well, you know what? Those kinds of polls are bad to begin with because survey methods differ wildly from country to country and the reliability of polls differ wildly. If you're asking people how they feel about their own country, most people have never been to another country. Most Americans have never been to another country. If you were to ask an American, how do you feel about how your country is? What are they comparing it to? They're comparing to how they felt about it 2 years ago or last year. They're not comparing it to everything else in the world. This kind of anti-American, lazy, anti-American, blank, blank is so frustrating to me because what Americans do not understand, what so many Americans do not understand is how much better our country is, not just than any country in the world, but how much better than any country in human history. The amount of freedom, the amount of peace, the amount of prosperity, the security, the military strength, all by by all of those metrics, the United States is still very much Abraham Lincoln's last best hope of earth. This kind of lazy, sloppy, clickbait predicated on pseudoscientific garbage is outrageous to me. And if and I don't want to be all what grinds my gears, I don't want to be all Peter Griffin here. But if you want to be U.S. news, act like it, okay?
1: Chris, this is a great transition. Hit me. Because it brings me from your anger to my favorite time of the week, (laughs) which is reader mail. And we have a note from Corey in Maryland who says, I took Chris's advice with me to a recent breakfast. $5 tip, even if $5 is well over the standard 20%. Well, on the screen, I typed $50 Ooh. instead of $5 and did not notice this mistake until I received the receipt. Awkward situation was the result. I had to explain that while I thought the staff was worth $50, on that particular day, I was not going to be the one giving them their due. And please change the $50 to the 5 for Chris Steyrwalt. Thanks, Chris. Cor- and Corey writes that the bagels were great. Which bagels? Uber Bagels, oh, okay. Baltimore and Ocean City. He said, and he wants to know, where is the best bagel in D.C.? I had Pearl's bagels a year ago and enjoyed, but I need the wretch's recommendation for my next D.C. visit. I think that D.C. does not have a fantastic bagel, but if you had to choose, I would say Bethesda bagel.
0: Oh, I, I, I disagree. Thanks. I think Call Your Mother bagels are excellent
1: their sandwiches are the best, but I don't think the quality of the bagel is amazing.
0: And the bullfrog bagel is excellent. I got no beef. Okay. I got no beef with Bethes. it's fine. But bullfrog is the as a bagel bagel. I like bullfrog as a bagel sandwich. I think call your mother is dynamite.
1: Call your mother has the best sandwiches, but again, their bagel quality.
0: I'm you know it's a different. There there are different styles of bagels, and call- yeah, theirs is a bad style. Uh, but I will tell you this, Corey of Maryland. If you got stuck, this is not an invitation to others. This is a one-time offer. But, Corey, if you got stuck, I'll make up the difference for you. You contact us, and I will Venmo you $45 if they did not refund your money because I, I, I want you to feel encouraged in the $5 minimum tip for sit-down service.
1: Okay. Chris, it is now time for your favorite time of the week. Which is our favorite items when I am forced to say something nice, but you, as always, will lead me by example.
0: Well, this is it. this is a an ultra selection because it is corny and I love it. Claire Ansbury, writing for the Wall Street Journal headline, they've been friends for sixty years. Lou and Bobby have figured out what most men don't. Good friends are good for us. Yet four in ten Americans say they don't have a best friend. And it's the story of Lou Wilcox and Bobby Roebuck, who from Ohio in Southern Ohio, who have been friends since they were kids and how their friendship is sustaining to them and good. This is a great kind of anecdotal story. We see all the statistics about the problem with the lack of strong friendships in people's lives and how hard it is as you get older. I'm, I, I'm sure you have the same experience. When we have kids, when we are working, it is hard to nurture and maintain strong friendships and do that. I am very blessed that I have some great friends in my life, but I do not get to see them nearly as much as I should and invest time. And that includes, you know, people at church, that includes friends from growing up, that includes all kinds, that includes all kinds of stuff. Doing this as an anecdotal story where you tell the story of a friendship to talk about how it works and all of those things is great. And she just wrote it so lovingly and she got out of the way of the story and she let the story, she let these guys tell their own story and then supported it with data. Great, great, great.
1: I loved it too. I thought it was wonderful. And my favorite item of the week was Andy Ferguson's review of the new Marty Parrott's memoir, The Controversialist, Arguments with Everyone, Left, Right and Center, Say who
0: Marty Peretz um, in, is first.
1: In I will, I will. Okay. In the Washington Free Beacon this past weekend. And Andy titles it Memoirs of a Closet Conservative because Peretz was the one-time owner of the New Republic who was a on the center-left in the 1980s and 90s. But now when you when he writes about his views, it's pretty clear he would find himself on the right. And the upshot of the review is... Andy writes, though the evidence of his right wing beliefs mounts on every page, he insists on keeping a fanciful distance from the conservatives who believe the same things he does, not only about the bedrock goodness of his country, but also about the virtues of capitalism, the corrosive effects of identity politics, the decline of the universities, the horrors of utopianism, the intellectual and social disaster that these days goes under the polemical tag wokeism. He uses right-wing as an insult, but Martin Peretz is a right-winger. He should fess up. His refusal to join the side he's on is more annoying than the chest hair. <laughs> and to understand the meaning of that, you should read the review. It's wonderful.
0: I, I And that? Well, I would, ju- I would just say Andy Ferguson is one of the best, maybe the best, profiler, writer of long-form pieces in the business. And I, I, I hear what he's saying, but... The contradictions of Marty I love, like Christopher Hitchens, like our friend Andrew Sullivan, like a lot of people, difficult, contradictory kind of folks are important to stimulate our minds and ideas.
1: That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. Just search for Wretches.